As with the case of taxation, there is no specially revealed biblical form of government or courts. The standard biblical passages that deal with these issues, uh, for example, Exodus 18 and Romans 13, describe aspects of providence and common grace. Unlike civil taxation, however, God certainly does establish and ordain civil rulers in general, and He does so for the specific function that we've discussed already of punishing crime. You can see that in Genesis chapter 9 and in Romans 13 again. But He doesn't give us a prescription for the form of that rule. Those details are left, as I said, to providence. But the lack of detailed prescription for courts does not mean that just any form of government or jurisprudence can be considered godly in the sense of the ideal of liberty, certainly biblical liberty. In many cases, in fact most cases, the providentially ordained system that's in place is a tyranny and it's there as an indicator of God's judgment in that land to some degree. God's providence is not willy-nilly. He acts according to His law and according to His sanctions in society. And so a, government's, uh, a society's government will be a manifestation of that society's faithfulness to that God. And this means ultimately that freedom and faithfulness to God are inextricably linked. Now we'll return to that idea in just a moment. The Bible tells us, for example, that bigger government is an indication of more pervasive wickedness in society. The proverb says, when a land transgresses, it has many rulers. But with a man of understanding and knowledge, its stability will long continue. Proverbs 28 and 2. Now, the corollary to that is, of course, that in a land where knowledge and understanding of God's will lead to self-government on the part of the people, that is, pervasive righteousness, uh, there will be little need for civil government. Thus, in a free society, we should expect to have few rulers that is, limited government. Now, while not specially revealing the idea of, of a system of government, God does give us theological principles which guide the decision over the form and method of selection. Now, without going into a whole treatise here on Christian government, which has been done in other places, uh, let me highlight the more important and relevant of those principles just briefly. There is representation, there is election, there is qualification, and there is decentralization. First, representation, primarily a theological principle which has ramifications in all covenant settings that include civil government, family, church, and state. Uh, just as Adam represented all of humanity in the fall, Christ represents all believers in His work of redemption. That's Romans 5. They are each covenant heads of a group of people. Believers are, in turn, Christ's representatives in the earth. Following the covenant headship of our Lord and Master Jesus Christ, we are ambassadors, the, the letter to the Corinthians says, of Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us, that is, to the world, 2 Corinthians 5.20, and you can compare Ephesians chapter 6. Now, the idea that we are, in some sense, God's redeemed representatives in this world reaffirms and renews the fact that we're created in God's image. 
There's a theological concept there. In a Christian civilization, we expect to see this principle at work in our civil covenant also. Civil rulers are to be representatives, images if you will, servant leaders of the people that elect them. And thus biblical government will always be representative government. Biblical government is also elective government. Unless there is some specially revealed leader who is legitimized by public divine activity, miracles and whatnot, such as Moses, Samuel, and Jesus, uh, the, the leaders that we have, including our civil leaders, are ideally to be elected. Uh, not inherited, uh, not appointed from above, but elected. Now we see this principle illustrated in the New Testament in regard to church government, specifically the office of uh, deacon. Uh, consider this passage from the book of Acts. And the twelve summoned the full number of his disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching uh, the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will then appoint to this duty. That's Acts chapter 6, verses 2 and 3. These table servers, if you will, deacons in the Greek, uh, the apostles instructed were to be chosen from among the people and by the people. And then, once they were elected, after they were elected, the apostles confirmed them publicly in their new offices. Now, these two uh, aspects of election and confirmation work together, however. Uh, the basis for confirmation is the third aspect of government, biblical government, and that is qualification. The apostles didn't just choose uh, the representatives willy-nilly, or uh, allow any representatives, that is. They would not just confirm anyone that the people chose. Those people had to meet certain standards. And so we see Paul, for example, later writing to Timothy and to Titus in, in his letters, who were leaders of their local congregations, responsible for those elected among them, confirming the elders and deacons in their churches. Uh, giving those qualifications for those people. And so there's a biblical principle that potential leaders must be godly, they must be sound individuals, having already proven their leadership abilities in their homes, in their businesses, among their peers, having a reputation for that. All of those things before even being considered for office. And the final principle, of course, is decentralization. And I'll go into that and highlight it in a moment. Uh, momentarily. These principles all pertain to official leadership in general, obviously ecclesiastical leadership uh, for which the Bible directly prescribes them, but there's no reason that they should not also, that they must not also apply to civil leadership as well. And thus there is no reason they should not be the ideal for biblical magistrates, biblical courts. Two primary passages in Scripture address the nature of the biblical judiciary system, one describes a very practical decentralized system of civil courts throughout society, and the other prescribes private courts as the ideal for Christians. And I want to go through both of those. The classic model for biblical system of civil courts is, uh, comes from Jethro's advice to Moses in Exodus 18. While Moses was the sole civil uh, judge for the people, three million people at the time, the court system obviously was clogged, 
everyone suffered, cases were not tried, Moses was worn out. Jethro advises him uh, that there should be a delegation of judiciary powers on a greatly decentralized model. And here's what the passage says. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. Now, all of the four elements of biblical government that I just went through are apparent in this passage, or at least can be safely assumed to have been involved in this, this setting. Each one of the new judges took over the duties of a smaller constituency. They were representatives. They were taken from the people. Uh, they were representatives. Each had to meet certain qualifications, godliness, honesty, integrity, refusing bribes. And the system worked uh, greatly to decentralize the judicial system that was, at, that was bottlenecked already at Moses. Now, most small matters would be settled at a very local level, and only the great issues made, uh, made uh, real impact in society made their way up to Moses. Now, it was also very highly likely that these new judges were all elected. Now, although it doesn't say that in the text, it says they were chosen by Moses. Uh, this is a, a way of speaking off in the Bible where uh, it's by proxy. Moses was the leader of the whole people, and so he gets the credit for what took place. But think of the task that was before him just for a moment. There were 600,000 of just men in Israel, according to Exodus 12:47. Just using that number of men alone, a program that would have chosen uh, chiefs for thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens, would have required 78,600 appointments. Now, there's no way Moses could have appointed that many judges by himself, especially since he would have had to analyze each one's character, reputation, their integrity, individually. Even if he only chose the top rung and then had each of them choose lower authorities, he still would have had to examine 600 men individually at a rate of you know, for example, 10 examinations a day, that would have taken two months. So it seems to me more likely that there had to have been some kind of an election process involved, at least at the lower levels of those courts where, you know, tens of thousands. The chiefs of tens would have required 60,000 appointments. Uh, so it seems to me that just as the apostles had the people choose out their servants from among them, so there was probably a mass announcement uh, in, the, in this setting for smaller groups to choose representative judges from among them. Whatever the mode of selection in this episode was, the point was drastically to decentralize the court system while leaving in place a system of appeals for the more momentous or more difficult cases. Again, this is a system based on the advice of Jethro to Moses, it was not specially revealed by God Himself, but nevertheless the principles that are involved here, as we've seen, are affirmed elsewhere in Scripture. So we can safely assume from that that a biblical court system can indeed be a civil state court system, 
but should definitely feature elected representative judges, biblically qualified judges, and a greatly decentralized system of local courts that have appeals. But state courts are neither the only nor even the most desirable system given in Scripture. The second significant passage that I mentioned in regard to courts shows us a better way, and that is private Christian courts. Whereas the state court system exemplified by Moses is based on the pragmatic advice of a man along with these piecemeal biblical principles that we've put together, the private court system that we shall see is directly revealed as the Christian ideal by the Apostle Paul. This should then be accepted and embraced by Christians as the most biblical method of resolving judicial disputes. Paul applies the Christian principle of private courts, you well know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, quote, When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is, none, that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather suffer be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Now what this shows is that first, all believers are judges. We're called to be judges first and foremost of ourselves. All of the Christian life is about making and obeying decisions that are faithful to the Lord's law, and this requires faithful judgment in applying it. Now, since civil government is instituted only to punish crimes, then courts will only need to exist to the extent that people fail in the effort of faithful self-judgment in civil law to begin with. But it is assumed that since we're still sinners, even as Christians, and we live in the midst of this fallen world about us, conflicts of judgment will certainly abound, both personally and interpersonally. And for that reason, courts will need to be uh, a necessity in order to decide uh, in such conflicts. Paul's admonition, however, is to exalt Christian virtues of forgiveness and love and self-sacrifice to the forefront of that process, and thus limit the number of conflicts that, number one, go to suit at all, and number two, go to suit between believers, and number three, uh, get heard before these state courts. All should be held to an absolute minimum. For the cases that do arise, private courts are usually the best alternative. And this means church courts, arbitration panels, Christian mediation boards, uh, even industry and professional courts, uh, above state courts. A society neglecting these outlets and, and neglecting the attitude of self-government will easily be paralyzed by endless litigation, massive bureaucracies, administrative law, countless, I should say, administrative laws. And this is what we see today. 
But toward that aim, all contracts between Christians should include some form of private dispute settlement clause. Christian mediation is probably the most common one. These types of uh, resolutions should seek to resolve all possible contract disputes privately between Christian brethren with the help of other Christian brethren and to eliminate the need for state courts in all but the most extreme criminal cases. Private courts may sound like a utopian dream, but uh, that's simply because we've grown up without hearing about them so much. We've rarely been exposed even to the idea, let alone the practice, for generations. But the truth is that private courts not only sound good in theory, they don't sound just utopian, they sound good in theory, they have existed widely in Western history, and they worked out quite well when they did. Arbitration grew popular after the Civil War in the United States. Judicial panels handled corporate labor disputes and were widely accepted, despite the fact that they were completely voluntary and not legally binding up until 1925. It was only when some corporations determined to streamline that process that New York in 1920 enacted a state takeover of arbitration, backing all arbitration suits with the force of state law. Thus did the abuse of a few get answered by the loss of even the option of purely private courts for everyone else. The U.S. government followed five years later by nationalizing the same principle. And this has been revised several times since then to give us what we have, the modern Federal Arbitration Act, which overrides legally all arbitration cases and state laws pertaining to arbitration. But keep in mind, this was not the case before 1925, and it only came about largely due to the political clout of large corporations and central planners in whose favor a government takeover of private courts fell. The idea of private industry or private merchant courts has deep historical roots that go all the way back to the Middle Ages, and their system illustrates why state enforcement is often unnecessary. From the Middle Ages until the 1920s, merchants relied on private courts, and if necessary, boycott and ostracism. One historian explains this very well, quote, Merchants made their courts work simply by agreeing to abide by the results. The merchant who broke the understanding would not be sent to jail, to be sure, but neither would he long continue to be a merchant, for the compliance exacted by his fellows and their power over his goods proved, if anything, more effective than physical coercion. Take John of Homing, who made his living marketing wholesale quantities of fish. When John sold a lot of herring on the representation that it conformed to a three-barrel sample, but which his fellow merchants found was actually mixed with sticklebacks and putrid herring, according to the quotation, he made good the deficiency on pain of economic ostracism. In other words, this was an honor system on steroids. Break the code of honor and you lost your livelihood. Once it was made known that a business ignored the decision of an arbitration panel, no one who would wish to do with that further, any further business with that person again. And while it may be natural to think things were just so different in the Middle Ages than they are today, it was not so long ago that our own industrialists like uh, Owen D. Young, who was the president and chairman of GE, spent a good portion of his time advocating for private arbitration. He advised the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and wrote several essays on the subject. 
he advised the chamber, quote, to support and develop the moral sanction upon which arbitration outside the law must depend. Indeed, there was uh, where the law was not in force, moral sanction is necessary and very effective key. Young concluded that the moral censure of other businessmen was far more effective sanction than legal enforcement. Now that was in 1915. Today, you have the internet, various databases, all kinds of powerful communications. Nationwide ostracism would even be more powerful than it could have been then. It could be public, it could be worldwide within seconds of an arbitration panel's decision. So we've seen that a biblical view of the judiciary involves several principles. The most challenging ones being, of course, that judicial decisions should be radically decentralized and privatized as far as possible. We've also discussed a couple of examples of how the United States was once a bit closer to those principles. Now these are just a small taste of the vast literature on both the theory and practice of private courts, of arbitration, and things of that matter. We do know that our society at least does have decent options in many cases, especially in private contracts and church courts. We also know that we once had options in this regard to an even greater degree than we have today. In the next section, we'll discuss how our judicial systems have been hijacked and abused from very early on and how this was manifested in the vast judicial tyranny that we uh, endure today. Now we've also not yet addressed the most important issue, by the way, and that is the basis upon which courts must operate. Far more important than the form of the court, or the method of the court, or the procedure, is the law itself. Without some ultimate legal system, the very idea of a court must give way uh, not merely to anarchy, but social chaos and lawlessness. So in a supplementary section to these videos, we'll discuss the source, the content, and the application of biblical law in the courts.